It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 306 for August 19th, 2012. This week, Nigeria? Why don't scammers claim to be from New Jersey? How to speed up a slow computer, part two. And in short circuits, identifying the source of viruses, both computer and human. Windows 8, now available for some of us. For Android, no flash, in or out of the pan. Crack Google's Chrome browser and win big money. And a mystery computer virus has Kaspersky asking for help. Well, that's enough to keep us busy for a while. Here's something I've wondered about for a long time, and a research paper by Microsoft's Cormac Hurley finally answers the question, after asking it, why do Nigerian scammers say they are from Nigeria? You may have wondered about this too, and Hurley has an economically plausible explanation. The 14-page report includes a lot of sophisticated formulas. I'll not try to parse that, but the conclusion is definitely worth sharing. Every time I receive a Nigerian scam message, it occurs to me that only a gullible fool would fall for such an obvious ploy. But it may be that that's the point. Let's start at the beginning, though. The problem that scammers face is one of differentiating what are called true positives, the people who can be victimized, from false positives, people who might appear to be good targets, but who will cost the spammer a great deal of effort for zero return. Much of the paper explores the various mathematical models that are in play, and in the midst of all those formulas, it points out that those who have fallen for a Nigerian scam might be even more likely to fall for the related fraud funds recovery scam. Apparently, P.T. Barnum was exactly right, and a fool is born, if not every minute, maybe every ten seconds. The attacker risks two types of errors— he may attack a non-viable user, spend time cultivating the victim, and then gain nothing. Or he may decide not to attack a viable user and thereby forego any gain. This is what's called a binary classification problem. Although the cost of sending spams is near zero, the cost of following up by email and phone with potential victims is not. This part is actually quite labor-intensive. For example, a population of 200 million users might contain 2,000 viable candidates, of which 80 will be attacked if the spammer uses what Hurley calls optimal strategy. His paper explains how this may be accomplished, but this summary isn't going to go into that. But 96% of the viable users who would succumb if attacked and yield a payback to the scammer will escape harm simply because there is no strategy to attack them without also attacking many non-viable users, so many that it would destroy any profit. And that's where Nigeria comes in. Nigeria is by far the country most commonly cited in scam spams. Hurley says that if the goal is to maximize response to the email campaign, it would seem that mentioning Nigeria, a country that to many has become synonymous with scams, is counterproductive. 
One could hardly choose a worse place to claim to be from if the goal is to lure the unwary into email communication. But what seems like common sense here doesn't work. The scammers need to identify the most gullible recipients. Since gullibility is unobservable, Hurley writes, the best strategy is to get those who possess this quality to self-identify. An email with tales of fabulous amounts of money and West African corruption will strike all but the most gullible as bizarre. It will be recognized and ignored by anyone who has been using the Internet long enough to have seen it several times. It will be figured out by anyone savvy enough to use a search engine. It won't be pursued by anyone who consults sensible family or friends, or who reads any of the advice that banks and money transfer agencies make available. Those who remain are the scammers' ideal targets. They represent a tiny subset of the overall population. Hurley suggests that injecting false positives into the scammers' operations could eventually make the endeavor financially impractical. The portion of the population successfully attacked falls much faster than victim density, and at low densities, the attacker is far more sensitive to false positives. Hurley's conclusion, binary classification reveals the fundamental trade-off that an attacker must make. To maximize profit, the attacker will not pursue all viable users, but has to balance the gain from true positives against the cost of false positives. This difficulty allows many viable victims to escape harm, and for attacks with low victim densities, the situation is extremely challenging for the scammer. Unless viable users can be distinguished with great accuracy, most viable users must be left unattacked. However, building an accurate classifier requires many viable samples. This suggests that at low densities, certain attacks pose no economic threat to anyone, even though there may be many viable targets. Most work on exploring these vulnerability, Hurley points out, ignore that fundamental question. Thinking like an attacker is a skill rightly valued among defenders, Hurley says. It helps expose vulnerabilities and brings poor assumptions to light. We suggest that thinking like an attacker does not end when a hole is found, but must continue, as an attacker would continue, in determining how the whole can be monetized. Attacking as a business model must identify targets, and this is easy only if we believe that attackers have solved the problem that has vexed multiple communities for decades. If you'd like to read the full 14-page abstract by Cormac Hurley, you'll find it on the Microsoft Research website, and you'll find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The link downloads the PDF, the full PDF, directly. Last time we were talking about that computer that seemed so fast when you bought it, but now seems to crawl. It's not your fault, but there are some things you can do to remedy the situation. This is part two of a series, and all of the examples here are for a Windows 7 system. Most of the processes will work on Vista or Windows 8, and many even work on XP. The names may differ slightly, but most of what you need to make the improvements will still be there. If you have a spare thumb drive lying around, you might be able to use it to improve your computer speed. This trick won't work on XP or Vista, and it's a bit of a long shot regardless, but we'll take a look at it as the first of this week's suggestions. And if it works, it's the fastest and easiest way to speed up a computer. It's called a ReadyBoost drive. ReadyBoost is a technique that permits the computer to borrow memory from flash drives. 
it can handle up to eight flash drives with a maximum of 256 gigabytes of additional memory. For ReadyBoost to work, the flash drive or memory card, and yes, if you have a second flash card for a digital camera, you can use that when your camera is not using it. The flash drive or memory card needs to have at least one gigabyte of available space. ReadyBoost will tell you if it doesn't, and if enough space is available and the device meets minimum requirements, Windows will show you how much space it recommends for optimal performance. Make sure that any device you want to use for ReadyBoost can handle data transfer at 2.5 megabytes per second or faster for reading, and at least 1.75 megabytes per second for writing. Faster, of course, is better. If you have a USB drive or a memory card that meets those specifications, it's easy to set up ReadyBoost. Just plug the flash drive or memory card into your computer, and if nothing happens, well, then you've disabled autoplay, so you'll need to visit the control panel and re-enable it. When the autoplay dialog is open, select the General Options tab, and then click Speed Up My System. Then, in the Properties dialog box, click the ReadyBoost tab. Select Dedicate This Device to ReadyBoost if you want to use the maximum available space on the flash drive or memory card, or select Use This Device, which will use less than the maximum available space. In either case, any existing files on the device will be preserved, or at least they're supposed to be. I think I'd make sure they're backed up first. Then click OK to complete the process. Tip number two, defragment your hard drive. Windows 7 does a good job with this all by itself, and the process is scheduled to occur once a week. You may want to consider changing the schedule, though, but don't do this if you've installed a solid-state drive. SSDs don't like being defragmented. Actually, the process can reduce their service life. If you have a standard disk drive, one with a spinning disk in it, well, you may gain a little bit of additional performance by running the defragmentation process. Just press the Windows key and type defrag, D-E-F-R-A-G. This will open the disk defragmenter. If you don't see scheduled defragmentation is turned on, click configure schedule and set up regular defragmentation. Unless you previously turned it off, though, it will be turned on. That's the default. Select all of the drives that are listed there and click analyze. The process will take a few minutes, or maybe a lot of minutes, depending on the size of the drives. In my case, it was complete in about 10 minutes and showed the worst fragmentation, 1%, was on drives C and G. If you see no drives with fragmentation higher than 15%, just close the dialog box and get back to work. It's not going to help you. If you see one or more drives with excessive fragmentation, though, select them, and then click Defragment Disk. Disk fragmentation is the result of the way Microsoft writes files to the drives. When files need to be read into memory, the process is always faster if the files are in a single continuous chunk instead of scattered all over the drive. The defragmentation process identifies files that have been split into many pieces and recombines them. Defragmentation is likely to create a noticeable improvement only if you had turned it off and only if your disks are badly fragmented. Well, there are two more ideas for improving your computer's performance. We'll continue this next week. In short circuits, a Swiss research facility has developed software that the scientists say can be used to quickly identify the source of a computer virus, a human virus, or even a rumor. They say that their application can be used to identify terror suspects. 
Dr. Pedro Pinto, a postdoctoral associate at Lucerne's Federal Polytechnic, AFP, says that this method can find the source of all kinds of things circulating in a network just by listening to a limited number of members of that network. For example, he says, by reconstructing the message exchange inside the 9-11 terrorist network extracted from publicly released news, our system spit out the names of three potential suspects, one of whom was found to be the mastermind of the attacks, according to the official inquiry. The algorithm examines the data and identifies the route taken by the information and thereby identifies the source. The investigation uses the time at which the data is passed from sender to recipient to identify the path and eliminate false trails. Pinto's research was published in Physical Review Letters. The techniques can be used to identify the source of false rumors. Pinto says that the source of a rumor sent to 500 contacts can be identified by examining posts received by no more than 20 people. And Pinto says the same process can also identify the origin of spam or computer viruses, and it can help epidemiologists identify the source of viruses. Pinto traced the source of a cholera outbreak in South Africa by using the software to examine water and transport networks. Windows 8 is here, at least for some of us. Members of Microsoft TechNet can now download the release to manufacturing disk image of Windows 8, and I've done that. Thursday evening, I booted to a Windows 8 installation disk, and after filling in some of the details, I was told that I had booted from a DVD. Actually, I already knew that. Then I was told that I should start Windows normally, and then load the DVD if I wanted to upgrade the system. This was on a computer that has both Windows 7 and the Windows 8 Preview Edition installed. The installer then told me it was making sure the computer was ready to have Windows 8 installed and that the process would take a few minutes. Actually, it took many minutes. Then it displayed several applications installed on the notebook computer that either needed to be reinstalled under Windows 8 or that weren't compatible with Windows 8. I could leave them or uninstall them. And once again, I'm offered the ability to boot from the DVD, or should I just allow the normal boot process to continue? No clues provided, so I allowed the normal boot process to continue and selected Windows 7. Then I started the Windows 8 installer again. Now that's actually what I should have done the first time, and I would actually should have remembered all that. After rebooting, I had the option of continuing from where I left off, that's what I selected, or starting over. Then, nothing. So I started the installer again from the DVD, once again wondering if anyone on the development team had actually tried this process. But then I noticed that the making sure you're ready to install function was already running in the background. <laughs> Another dummy error on my part. Well, eventually, after telling the Java updater several times that I wasn't interested in a Java update right now, well, I was finally ready to install. Your PC will restart several times, the installer said. This might take a while. Reboot. 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 Sure is fun. Well, the installer did warn me it had happened several times, and it did warn me it would take a while. The while was about an hour. I was asked to provide information to identify myself, and the installer said that it's getting the PC ready. This will take a few minutes. During the process, the screen cycled through various colors, then began installing apps. This will take a few minutes. 
And finally the installer told me it was taking care of a few things. Please don't turn off your PC. Almost ready. Please don't turn off your PC. And voila, the Windows 8 start screen. I selected Restart, and the boot manager offered Windows 8 on Volume 2 and Windows 8 on Volume 3. Hmm. Windows 8 on Volume 2 was the previous Windows 7 partition, so that's what I selected, and we're off to the races. For those who aren't members of TechNet, but who would like an advanced explanation of what you might find in Windows 8 and in Office 2013, I would encourage you to visit lynda.com and view David Rivers' 92-minute summary for Windows 8 or his 76-minute series on Office 2013. Only a few of the videos in either of those series are available for free, but for the cost of a one-month subscription, you'll be able to view both of these series and lots of other programs that you'll find useful. Adobe has removed its Flash Player plugin for Android from the Google Play Store. This isn't a surprise, because the decision had been announced earlier as part of Adobe's decision to halt development of software for mobile devices. The decision was made now because of the release of Android 4.1, Jelly Bean. Adobe says the new version of the Android operating system would result in what the company called unpredictable behavior that would be unacceptable. So, if you have the Flash Player installed on an Android device and you've updated that device to Jelly Bean, or you're planning to, Adobe says you should uninstall the Flash Player. Adobe notes the decision does not affect Flash Player for desktop systems and notebook computers. It also does not affect Adobe Air, an application that allows developers to convert web-based applications into mobile apps using Flash. Google is placing as much as $2 million on the table for those who can find and exploit a security flaw in Chrome. And this is the second time around for Google. According to a company blog, the event that they held earlier this year exceeded their expectations. They received two submissions of such complexity and quality that both of them won an award at this year's Black Hat Industry event. Most importantly, Google says, they were able to make Chromium significantly stronger based on what we learned. Google is looking for people who can perform various types and levels of exploits, from a full exploit that uses only bugs in Chrome itself, to full exploits using plugins or the computer's operating system, and even incomplete exploits that might, for example, run in a sandbox, but not be able to escape. A sandbox, by the way, is a security mechanism that separates running programs. It's often used to execute untested code or untrusted programs from unidentified or unverified third parties, suppliers, or untrusted users, and untrusted websites. The point of using a sandbox is to protect all the other applications on the computer and the computer's operating system. A sandbox usually provides a tightly controlled set of resources for guest programs to run in and disallows network access and the ability to inspect the host system or read from input devices. Prizes range from $40,000 to $60,000 for full exploits, 
Amounts awarded for incomplete exploits will be determined by a committee. Google software engineer Chris Evans says that exploits must be demonstrated against the latest stable version of Chrome. Chrome and the underlying operating system and drivers will be fully patched and running on an Acer Aspire laptop. The person who writes the best exploit even gets to take the computer home. Participants must document the exploit, which is clearly why Google is interested, and the bugs must be something that Google programmers haven't seen previously. Here's something to ponder. Why would a computer virus watch for computers with no internet connections and then install only when no internet connection is found? No internet connection. That's one of the primary questions that software engineers at Russian antivirus maker Kaspersky are trying to solve. A computer virus called Gauss, discovered in June, is active in Lebanon. And at this point, nobody knows why, what it's doing, or what it will do. Making the situation even worse is the fact that the payload the virus carries is encrypted. Actually, it's encrypted inside an encryption. So Kaspersky is now asking others for help. In a blog post this week, the company said that it has thus far been unable to break the encryption. We're presenting all the available information about the payload, Kaspersky's blog says so that someone can find a solution and unlock its secrets. We're asking anyone interested in cryptology, numerology, and mathematics to join us in solving the mystery and extracting the hidden payload. The Gauss virus has been found on more than 2,500 computers. Although most are in Lebanon, it has surfaced elsewhere. The amount of encryption involved and the locations where the virus has been found, various Lebanese banks, Citibank, and PayPal, suggest that this is a large and potentially dangerous attack. The fact that Gauss specifically seeks out computers that are not connected to the Internet suggests that it's looking for computers that are generally considered safe by virtue of being off the public Internet. So far, it seems primarily to be collecting usernames and passwords. Kaspersky's blog speculates that Gauss is a state-sponsored attack. But the question is, which state? Israel and the United States have been implicated in the development of the Stuxnet virus that was used to delay Iran's nuclear problem. So, who created Gauss? Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.